Let's take our Bibles together and turn to John chapter 17. Supposing we were able to go back in time to have a time machine, <clears throat> I wonder which period of history you'd like to go back to. Do you have any ideas? I wonder whether just thinking about that for a moment might give you pause for thought. Because there are some things about the past that are very unattractive. I just thought of some things the other day. There's the smell. <clears throat> because people were not as hygienic back then. And there's the food. I'm not really sure that we would take to the food that people had back then, really. And then there's the danger. I mean, there's a reason why historic times are called historic times. It's because people were being imprisoned, burned alive, fed to lions, and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the likelihood of being a serf or a slave, which probably most of us would be. So, let's not think about going back in a time machine. Let's think about going back in a machine that goes back before time. Well, you say before time, there was nothing. Because time is associated with creation. So, if we go back before creation, we're going back before there was time. Before there was anything. So, there'd be nothing to go back to. So, there was a hypothetical thing and a waste of our time this evening. And yet, and yet, and yet, we have John 17. And what John 17 does is it transports us back to a time before time. Because in this, uh, in this chapter, there are two references, one in verse 5 and one in verse 24. And you can see that there Jesus is referring to Events that took place before there was anything that we are familiar with. That is anything material, anything physical, anything created. A time before there were planets and suns. A time before there were laws, physical laws. A time before there were people, obviously. A time before there were angels, archangels, seraphim, cherubim. A time before time. Look at verse 5. He talks about something he shared with the Father before the world existed. In verse 24, he talks about the foundation of the world before the foundation of the world. He talks about the relationship he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. In other words, this language of Jesus is a direct challenge to the view of somebody like Carl Sagan, who said that this universe is all there ever is or was or ever shall be. Jesus' words here challenge that view of the world. Here we're being taken to a time before time when there is nothing, nothing but God himself. Nothing but God himself. In fact, what we have in this prayer is a kind of portal opened into the mind of the Godhead. We, we overhear this prayer. This prayer is, is prayed very much on this earth. 
It's prayed from the lips of someone who is very much a human being like us. He's put on our skin. But of course, it's being prayed by someone who is not like us in another sense. John has made that very clear. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that this evening because we'll have to revisit this again when we're looking at this prayer in terms of what it tells us about God. But, but this evening, let me remind you that right at the very beginning of this gospel, in fact, we could go further back than that, but let's start there. The beginning of the gospel, John describes the Word of God. Now, you can't really distinguish between the Word and the person who speaks the Word. The Word. The Word was face-to-face with God. That is, in a relationship with God. As close as it's possible to get, face-to-face. No human being can look at God. The Word was face-to-face with God. And the Word was God. And everything that has been made was made by him. In the beginning, that is before anything began, there was the word self-existent, pre-existent. Here in this chapter, Jesus talks about the glory he had with the Father before the world existed. At that point, at that point, you could not think of anything but the one God In his three persons, that's all there is. There is one God and three persons. Each of those persons within the Godhead are co-equal, co-eternal. There is no subordination within the Godhead. It is all perfect equality, equality with God. Jesus shares that glory with God before the world began. So right at the very heart of the Godhead, there is a simplicity, a simple unity. God is a simple being. He's not a complex being. He is a simple being. There is one God, one God, one mind. That's being disputed, by the way, by some evangelical scholars today, some popular teachers are questioning that. They're saying that there's a different mind. The Father has a different mind. The Son has a different mind. The Spirit, the Father has a will. The Son has a will. The Spirit has a will. But where we are going this evening, there is but one mind, one will, one heart, one God in three persons, three realms of consciousness. God is a simple being in that strict philosophical sense. You see traces of it back in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God did it. And then we read about the Spirit of God hovering over the things that are made in order to form them and shape them. So who is it? Is it God or is it the Spirit? And then you hear God saying, let there be light and there is light. So who is it? Is it, is it the speech of God that makes things? Is it the Spirit of God that makes things, or is it God that makes things? And the answer of Genesis 1 is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, God the Spirit, the Word of God, the expression of God, created everything. And together they 
plan together, they come together, they consult together, and they say, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So there you have the introduction, really, to this, the existence of God before, in the time, before there is time. And what we learn, what we learn from Jesus here, as he speaks about this, is that in the time before there was time, that point in eternity before there was time, before the world existed, before the foundation of the world had been laid, at this point, there was a plan formed, forged, formed in the mind of God. It was a great plan. It was the plan of salvation. Now, in, at this point in, in history, we have evangelical people who don't believe in the plan of God. They never talk about a plan of salvation. They think that God works without a script. That is, that God does not have any preconceived idea of what he's doing, that God simply reacts to what's going on in history, and he makes things up as he goes along. We call those people open theists. But apparently Jesus did not believe in open theism, and he actually knew God, since he was in the, the second person of the Trinity, if we can even use that phrase. That, that's actually an incorrect phrase to call him the second person. It, it, it indicates subordination, and there is no subordination within the Godhead. But here we find Jesus discussing with his Father in his humanity from this point of time what they'd been doing before the foundation of the world, before the earth existed. They had been discussing a plan, a scheme, the drama that we call the drama of redemption. Now, theologians in the Reformed tradition speak about this covenant of redemption. That's often the expression they use, and they refer to it often by its Latin title, Pactum Salutis. This pact of salvation, this engagement together within the Trinity to carve up responsibilities, as it were, for the fulfillment of the salvation of people who didn't even exist yet, whose existence had not been established yet. But they were going to be God's elect. God had already, God, the Trinity, had already decided they were going to share their inner life, their life of love that they had shared together from all eternity. They were going to share their inner life of love with elect people whom they would make. We have that reference later on when Jesus is praying that the people that he's praying for, would share the love that the Father had had for the Son from before the foundation of the world. You want to know what God is about in your life? We, we often start, don't we, with the forgiveness of our sins. But here's what's really going on. Here is the big picture of what God is doing for you. He wants you one day to be so transformed that you are able to bear looking at the face of God in Christ Jesus, able to share with God His eternity, and able to enjoy the inner life of the triune, the inner life of God Himself, and the love 
the sheer, unfettered, undiminished, unrestrained love that the members of the Godhead have shared together from eternity before there was anything. Isn't, isn't that amazing? Oh, the love that formed salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Now, some theologians don't like the word covenant. Normally, covenants are made between God and humans, and this covenant is unique. It's made within the Godhead, between the members of the Trinity. This pact made between the Father, Son, and Spirit is for the express purpose of redeeming God's elect. It's covenantal in nature because, as Jesus indicates here, in the working out of this covenant, there was a reward conceived by the Trinity, a reward that would be given to the Son, who is the one who will take on our humanity, come into the world, and achieve our salvation. There is a reward promised to the Son for His obedience. That's what he's referring to when he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. Later on, he'll talk about the people that you promised me. And uh, what is the reward that God promised his son for his obedience? Did you know that the reward God promised his son and for which he worked in obedience to God in his earthly life was his elect, his people? He worked for his people. Now, here we have this hint. It's a very strong indicator. There is no other way to explain what's going on here in John 17 in the language that Jesus uses when he's talking to his father apart from an understanding of that pactum salutis, that covenant of redemption. And it's all over the Bible. It's littered all over the Bible. In Psalm 40, for example, if you have the time to turn to it. In Psalm 40, we find uh, the, the writer to the Hebrews helps us to understand. We find the Son before His incarnation, as He's in the process of coming into the world, saying to His Father, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear, or ears you have dug for me. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it says, a body you have prepared for me. The, the ear is part of the body. God has prepared the body for the Son as He comes into the world, a physical body in which He will obey the Father. And we learn something about the Father. We learn that the Father, in preparation for our salvation, was absolutely involved in the process of planning and preparing a body that Jesus would use in the business of salvation. He gave special thought to this creative work in Mary's womb, taking her genetical, genetic code and in a miracle forming a body in her womb that would then be born naturally into the world. The Father was intensely, intimately involved in the preparations for the Son's entry into the world. Therefore, we must never think for one minute that the Son is doing something as a kind of lone ranger in this business of salvation. He is always acting with and in the Father for our salvation. Because there's only one God, 
and there's only one mind, and there's only one will within the Godhead. Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, explains, As the Word, who is immortal, and the Father's Son, it was impossible for him to die. And this is the reason why he assumed a body capable of dying, so that belonging to the Word who is above all, in dying it might be a sufficient exchange for all, that is, for all his people. Again, Athanasius says, he took a body so that in that body he might find death and blot it out. Or again, Athanasius, this is way back, one of the early church fathers, he was not limited or confined by the body, but held it under control so that he was both in it, the Son became flesh, the Word became flesh, he was in it, in that physical body, and at one and the same time, in all things, and outside all created things. Jesus did not give up being God when he brought into his nature, this human nature, when he added to his godhood a human nature, including a human body. He did not stop being God. While he is, walk, while he is a little baby at Mary's, on Mary's lap, while he is playing around her feet in the house, while he's watching his father as a carpenter, while he's playing with his friends at school, while he's listening to the stories his mother tells him, while she's telling him Bible stories, he's memorizing them, as he's growing in his, in his boyhood up to the, about the age of 12, and he goes off with his parents to the temple, and there at the temple he is testing out what he's learned and what he's been praying about and what he's been studying in the Bible, because as he reads the Bible, he hears echoes of himself. He finds himself in the Bible and He's, he's testing it out with those theologians as he understood these passages correctly. He is growing in wisdom and knowledge in his humanity. He's learning in his humanity. He is growing and developing in his understanding of who he is until that baptism moment. When driven by the Word of God to fulfill all righteousness as a second and last Adam, he goes to the waters of baptism and says to John the Baptist, I must fulfill all righteousness. And the Father gives him the first clue in his life. Up until this point, he has gotten where he is the way you and I get where we are, by reading the Bible and prayer. And the Father confirms to him both that he is God's Son eternally from Sam 2, and secondly, that he is to be the suffering servant of the Lord from Isaiah 53. So he's developing in his humanity, but at one and the same time, always he is ruling everything. He is holding the universe together by the very word of his power. As God, as God the Son. So, as Athanasius puts it, and I'm sorry I got kind of drawn away from what Athanasius was saying there. He was not limited and confined by the body, but held it under control so that he was both in it and also in all things and outside all created thing, 
things, reposing in the Father alone. Indeed, the wonderful thing is that at one and the same time as man, he was living a human life. As the Word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. And as the Son, he was in constant union with the Father. Now, I know you're finding it hard to get your head around that. It's late Sunday evening. But what is all that planning and preparation that's going on by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit lies behind the announcement to Mary, the chosen mother. When the angel comes to deliver the message, don't be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. And behold, you'll, be, you'll conceive in your woman, bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of his father, David. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary says, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Just as at creation, the Spirit was hovering over creation to bring order and life. So the same Holy Spirit, Mary, is going to be hovering over your womb to create in your womb a new life. A body the Father has been preparing for the Son. Therefore, the child to be born to you shall be called the Son of God. Now, that's what Psalm 40 is all about, really. You hear in that Psalm the Son speaking to the Father. When he says to the Father, Behold, I've come in in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I desire to do your will. The book of Hebrews picks that up and puts it on the lips of Jesus. He came to do the will of his Father. That's what he's referring to when he says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Any hints of subordination of Jesus to the Father are only in the realm of redemption and for the purposes of redemption. There is nothing in the nature of God as Trinity. There is nothing in the nature of God as Trinity in which any of the members are subject to the others. There is a movement from the Father, the Son, to the Spirit, from the Father who begets to the Son who's begotten to the Spirit who proceeds. But that movement is not a movement of rank, but a movement of life. Outwards, from the very heart of God. Psalm 110. There's a reference there as uh, David Reports on past tense speech to the one he calls my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. He says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And he speaks to his son. The father speaks to his son. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And there what the, the, the psalmist is teaching there in Psalm 110 is is describing this moment when the pre-existent Christ, before the dawn of time, before the creation of the world, as a result of this discussion, we can't even talk about a discussion within the Trinity since they have one mind, one will, 
But in this decision within the triune mind, the moment when the pre-existent Christ, before the dawn of time, receives his eternal priesthood for the purposes of redemption, in the order of Melchizedek, by virtue of an oath sworn by the Father himself. And in fact, this, is, this prayer is, is very much the prayer of a priest. We've already noticed that. We'll notice it again and look at it more fully, I think, in, in the coming times. But this appointment of Jesus as a priest before time began, recorded in Psalm 110, points us again to this pactum salutis, this joint work of the Father and the Son. Because his people are going to need a priest. His people are going to need a priest to offer a sacrifice. In this prayer, Jesus will offer the sacrifice to the Father. He'll say to the Father, for their sakes, that is my elect, the ones you've chosen and promised me, and now because I've accomplished the work given to me, for their sakes, I consecrate myself to be the sacrifice. I'm the priest, and I'm consecrating myself to be the sacrifice for them. You see that flow? We need a priest to offer a sacrifice. We need a priest to make intercession for us. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's praying not only for himself and his disciples, the apostles, but he's, got, he's praying for you and me, you and me this evening. Because in verse 20 it says, I don't pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. We've come to believe in Jesus through the word of the apostles. Then Isaiah 53. We know all about Isaiah in this church. Uh, uh, but just let me remind you that uh, there, just as the Father said to the Son in his baptism, Jesus is called the servant, my servant. In Isaiah 42, he's given as a covenant for the people. In chapter 53, we discover that he is responsible to obey the Father as the basis for our redemption. Our sins are imputed to him. He suffers as a result of our sins. He feels the weight of the wrath of God against us deflected onto him. We read that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The will of the Lord shall also prosper at his hand. In other words, the suffering of Christ was according to the Father's will, which was according to that one will before the creation of the world. So before the creation of the world, they kind of subdivided the tasks involved. The Father planning, the Son accomplishing, the Spirit applying this work of salvation. And as a result of his work, Isaiah 53 says, many will be accounted righteous. So the salvation of our, our salvation depends on Jesus' obedience. That's why he's saying to the Father, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now he can talk about eternal life. Now he can say, you see, I have authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those who you have given to me. Why can he say that? Well, he can say that because according to Isaiah 53, he's obeyed and has undertaken to do the work and finish the work the Father has given to him. Or take another reference. We could do all kinds of studies. This is just an overview I'm giving you this evening. Zechariah chapter 6. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. The branch was a title for the Messiah. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. The church is the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. And he shall sit on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne. He is to be a king and a priest. And the council of peace shall be between them. This council of peace is, is seen by most Reformed scholars as the covenant or arrangement, the pactum salutis, the arrangement by which the reward promised to the Messiah of uh, peace with God for us is accomplished. So once the jobs are carved out, <coughs> the author of our redemption is the Father. Isn't that interesting? The Father chooses the people that He will save. You were loved by the Father in the time before time. God so loved the world. What does the cross demonstrate? The cross demonstrates the Father's love for us. You were loved by the Father. And in the New Testament, salvation is invariably described as the gift of God. That is of God the Father. It's the gift of God the Father. No, no, no anyone ever set up the Father as some kind of uh, person who needs to be cajoled or pushed into showing you mercy. The Father is not like the God of Islam. The Father is a loving Father to His people. And this plan, this gospel plan, is more than a proposal that God has outlined. It's uh, a plan put in place within the Trinity before there were any people to save. And so the author of redemption in the working out of this business is the Father. The purpose of redemption is the salvation of a people, a people who were perishing, a people who were condemned already, a people who are unrighteous, and the Lord Jesus is praying to His righteous Father. And the purpose is of redeeming these people, of reconciling them to the Holy Father, of giving them eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The purpose of salvation, redemption, is our salvation. The mediator of redemption, the one between God and us, if you will, is the one who became flesh, the Word that became flesh, that member of the Godhead who takes on Himself something foreign to Him, human nature. He who did not think equality with God something to be grabbed for. He who was by very nature God became a servant and was found in fashion as a man. And now he says, do you notice, that he has authority over all flesh to give 
eternal life to all the Father had given to him. The Son is the mediator. A mediator is an important person. In any mediation situation, a mediator is the person who moves between the opposing parties. And he touches both sides. He speaks to both sides. He brings the agreement into the situation. And although the word mediator is not used, we see it in practice here in John 17. The focus of redemption is the cross. That is the crisis that provokes the prayer that we are studying. And like any other human being in the flesh, he's facing execution. It's on his mind. He's concentrating on what lies ahead. It's always there. In fact, he talks about it in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. The hour is that composite code phrase that's used that kind of summarizes the whole work of obedience, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, session at God's right hand, enthronement, and so on. That whole process is is the work of Christ. And the first step to that is the cross. In the cross, be my glory ever. Jesus is thinking about the cross. It's there in his mind. Throughout John's gospel, this phrase, the hour has not yet come, and now the hour has come. Has the cross particularly in view? He refers to it, for example, in chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he goes on to say this. A grain of wheat needs to fall to the ground and die, and only then can it bear fruit. He's saying if there's going to be a people, if there's going to be a people to populate heaven, a people who are going to experience and live in the love of God for eternity, I have to die. I have to die. And the way of redemption, the way of redemption is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's how we have come to know God. We've not come to know an idea, but a person. And God is very personal to us because we have come to know God through Jesus Christ the Son of God. Jesus Christ has flesh and bone. Jesus Christ is a living human being. He still is. He's taken that humanity to heaven. He told these men earlier on in this evening where he's praying now, he told them earlier on, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He alone is the one who can give us eternal life. And this eternal life comes from this one God who's made this great plan. Do you know the Apostle Paul reflects on this? He, he talks about this in Ephesians 3, for example, where he talks about the eternal purpose that the Father has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Greek phrase there, the Greek word translated purpose can also mean plan or resolve. It's this great scheme, this great plan of redemption. This great overreaching purpose, it's eternal. God always had a plan. The personal work of Christ are central to God's plan because 
it says that God realized or accomplished or effected this salvation, Paul says, in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning, the center, and the end. He's the goal of God's eternal purpose. His intention is to unite all things in Him, that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That is the great goal. We sang in that lovely hymn in the cross, we sang about the day when we will cross that golden strand into glory. And that's an amazing thing, amazing thought, to be in the presence of God, to have the undimmed, undiminished vision, sight of God, which will not be a spiritual fuzz against the background of the horizon, but it will be the very physical presence of the enfleshed Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray this evening that you would grab our imaginations and make this wonderful truth, this heart-stopping, mind-expanding, love-breathing truth of this great plan of salvation, this great pactum salutis. Make that great plan real to us, Lord. May we live in the light of it, rejoice in it, and look forward to that day when, by your grace, we will be with Christ where he is and be like him and experience the love that was yours within the Godhead before the world existed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.